Hello and welcome to the Doctor Who pod, a show where two lardy slabs of laddie loveliness jump back and forth with Doctor from 1963 to present day and back again all over the place looking at different doctors different companions different stories and so on thank you so so much for pressing download play or however you access your podcasts to join us today and i keep saying us so i better introduce the other half of this duo uh my name first of all is Sai, and with me as always is the always awesome dan griffin how are you doing my friend you may be the better half of this podcast, but I'm the bigger half. So <laughs> I'm not. You've never seen me from the collar down, mate. So you don't know. <laughs> that can make a pretty good guess. <laughs> you forget those pictures you sent me in the middle of the night. <laughs> no, I, that, I do forget those pictures. I forget taking them as well. It's not until the following morning I look at WhatsApp. I'm like, oh my, no, that don't really happen. That's... <laughs> <laughs> this beard is not just there for, you know, but to make me look older, mate. This is to hide the chins, trust me. Under Tank Abbott's beard, there is only another fist. Under my beard, there's only 17 more chins. But, uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm pretty good, mate. Look, uh, just ever so slightly under the weather. So if I'm. Uh, a bit uh, a bit grotty sounding i do apologize to people listening but uh yeah I'll, no worries mate no worries. Well, we had to cut we had to postpone a recording this weekend didn't we because i was feeling the same coughing and spluttering and sore throat and whatnot so which was yeah. fortunate because uh i ended up having to oh well, i say having to ended up helping look after my, my nieces so it was a good mm-hmm. bit of family time in the end you're here actually i i imagine um if anyone out there listens or checks out uh, Nitro Nights, which is a new show I'm doing, looking back at the wrestling company WCW step by step. I did actually try and record a couple of episodes of that before cancelling more recordings with yourself and my Nitro Nights partner as well, because my throat just got too bad. When you when you do hear these shows back when they finally come out, you'll be hearing me talking like this, and my voice goes up like this, and then goes back down like this, and then I'm talking away again like this, where my throat was so sore. And it wasn't until I played it back that I could, but I couldn't do nothing about it once it was recorded. So it was just, it's just out there now, mate. <laughs> the S and the P and SJP stand for second puberty. That's right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, excellent stuff, excellent stuff. So then, today's episode is a modern who, a new who, as it is called, which is very much the section of the show that Dan is in charge of. It's Mummy on the Orient Express. Dan, talk us through why you chose this one, my friend. Well, I chose this one primarily because of the link with what we were talking about uh, in a previous episode with uh, Bradley Walsh and that sort of crossover into uh, into acting and particularly, obviously, to Doctor Who. Uh, and Frank Skinner sprung to mind uh, in this episode, who, uh, as we'll get on to play, as a side character. Um but I was quite pleasantly surprised that this episode actually adds a great deal of, of depth to uh, the Doctor and Clara's uh, relationship, really. It's, um, it makes it a lot more complex than I, than I ever remember. Um, and plus, I really like the, uh, the idea of the villain. It's, sort of, um, it's, a, it's basically sci-fi murder mystery, mm. which I think is a really, uh, really nice little take on, the, on that sort of thing. It's not your typical uh, you know, pre- uh, Professor Plum in the, uh, in the study with the candlestick, but it's a really no, nice no. take on, uh, <laughs> on, on a classic, uh, on a cl- at least on a classic uh, title. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, again, with regards to the new Who episodes, I did watch them all, barring maybe some Matt Smith, as I mentioned in the past. I did watch them all as they were broadcast, but a lot of them I won't have ever revisited since they were broadcast. And this one here, I know I've not revisited since it was broadcast. And I can remember when you said the the the, the episode title, Mummy on the Orient Express, that sort of jogged a few memories for me. Mm. The beginning of the episode, 
where we see an old lady get killed by the mummy and the, the 66 second clock sort of running in the corner uh, mm. to sort of set the scene, so to speak. And then the fact that the train is in space, that sort of jogged a few memories as well. But then there was so much more in the sort of second half of this episode that I'd completely forgotten about until it actually happened. So th- I'm, I'm loving this sort of thing. Like when we, when we watched the the episode that I couldn't pronounce <laughs> a little while back with Jodie Whittaker, the um, the surprise of the Cyberman arriving. It's almost mm. like it's me watching these back for the first time. So I really, really enjoyed watching this back. Is this one you've seen back a lot or is this the first time you've seen it in a little while? I've I've watched it overall about three or four times, but not watched it in maybe two years, two and a half years. Okay. It only it only came out in twenty fourteen. Uh, obviously, right. been a couple of the episode, um, but just going back very quickly, you mentioned uh, the old lady that dies at the beginning, and uh, mm-hmm. that's Mrs. Pitt, who's played by Janet Henfrey, who was also in Doctor Who in nineteen eighty nine. She played Miss Hardacre in the Curse of Fenric, which was one of Sylvester McCoy's uh, series. Oh, right, I'll tell you what, I watched that about. Oh, I don't know. About two, three weeks ago, I rewatched that. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Mrs. Pitt is uh, is Miss Hardacre in the Curse of Fenric. Wow, that's amazing. I love <laughs> stuff like that. That's brilliant. Yeah, well, I do have a couple more, but I'll get to them as we uh, as we go along. Yeah, sure. Yeah, and I, I mean, as you mentioned earlier as well, that the sort of a big part of this episode is made up by the kind of the dynamic between the Doctor and Clara, and and their relationship is is changing. I guess. I mean, Clara effectively. And correct me if I'm wrong here, Dan, because I've watched this as a standalone episode and you know a lot more about New Who than I do. Mm. But Clara is effectively leaving the TARDIS. This she's she, this is their last hurrah, as they word it a couple of times throughout the episode, isn't it? That's the kind yeah. of dynamic at, at the beginning of the show anyway. Yeah, they're on, uh, the Doctor and Clara are on rocky ground. Clara's found uh, found a fella, essentially. She's, uh, uh, she's with uh, Danny Pink. Lucky, uh, lucky fella. Yeah. <laughs> I'll tell you what, let's just get this out of the way right now, okay? I, I adore Clara Oswald. And I don't I don't necessarily mean Clara Oswald. I, Jenna Coleman to me, I adore her. She's fantastic. She's so, so, so pretty. I got a massive, massive, almost silly teen boy crush on Jenna Coleman, mate. So I wish you could see side now. He's got little love out springing up around his head. <laughs> I'll, I'll get that my uh, my silly teenage boy gushing about Jenna Coleman out of the way right now. She is fantastic, okay? <laughs> Anyway, carry on. (laughs) So the Doctor and Clara are in a very, like I said, a very rough patch. She's got the boyfriend. She's trying to balance life in the TARDIS and life and life, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, The Doctor's done a couple of things since he regenerated where she's questioning what type of man he's become because obviously uh, Clara came into it with Matt Smith. Uh, There was always a bit of of sexual tension between Clara and, and Matt Smith's Doctor. And then she's sort of got over the whole thing of his face changing and now he looks older. Um, he picked the face of Caecilius, who Peter Capaldi played in uh, The Fires of Pompeii, which was um, David Tennant and uh, Catherine Tate. My name escaped me then, brain farting. <laughs> um, so she's come to terms with the fact he's not, uh, not young and pretty anymore. Mm-hmm. But this version of the Doctor, on the surface of it, is a bit of a bastard. Yeah, there are moments where I pick up on that, and I sort of there are moments that sort of make me think back to not just this episode, but Capaldi in general. There were moments where you think, "Oh, okay, he's, he is he has got quite a nasty side to him." I guess I don't even know if it's nasty, ruthless, and just and just hard. When in the past, you know, it's particularly new who the likes of your, your tenants and your Smiths would go out of the way with some convoluted plan. On the surface, at least, Capaldi's Doctor 
is very much, well, this will save the most people. Will save everyone. Mm, okay. It's almost, almost, almost sort of coldly logical about the whole thing. Very almost a Dalek esque <laughs> in that oh, regard. Yeah, yeah. A little bit cold and unfeeling. Um, uh, do you think maybe? Sorry to interrupt, Dan, but do do you think maybe? And I, I'm just I'm just sort of grabbing a straw here, I guess. That impression of Peter Capaldi's Doctor. Do you think his appearance maybe adds to that feeling because he is an older gentleman, and he has got quite. I suppose more stern features, shall we say, than the previous two incarnations. Do you think maybe on a subconscious level, the way he looks also leads into that as well, potentially? Funny enough, the, one of the first things that happens when you when Capaldi uh, when Smith regenerates into Capaldi is he references how angry his eyebrows are. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Funny enough, but they it's kind of the stuff about is about sort of being stern and and. And, and cold and hard. It, it, it was all written into the character, I think, with Capaldi in mind, because mm. obviously they, they must have known who was coming up, or when they did know, I believe a lot of it was was written around him. So I don't think it's necessarily his looks dictating the sort of the way the character comes across. It's the Doctor's actions <laughs> which dictate that, because there were, there were moments in even in Smith's early days, because Smith, I think, was the youngest actor to play the Doctor. When he took over, I think he was about twenty-seven. Okay. And there's a bit in the Beast Below where it's the Starship UK, so humanity's taken to the skies because the world's ended basically. And the Smith's Doctor finds out that it's uh, a creature called a Star Whale right. that that basically arrived and let humanity build build on its back and then saved them by taking them into space. But they're essentially torturing it and zapping his brain to keep to make sure it keeps flying until they find a new planet. So they're effectively torturing this giant, gentle creature. And Smith absolutely hates it. But Smith's doctor absolutely hates it because he's left in a position where he either lets them keep torturing the whale, lobotomizes it so it doesn't feel anything, and effectively mm. becomes brain dead. Yeah. Or turns the machine off and risks killing humanity. And he goes off on this incredible rant, which ends with him screaming at Amy Pond, nobody human has anything to say to me today. And that's when you realise that he's got, you know, he's got that bit of edge. It's just more at the forefront at this point. It's almost like the Doctor's getting, he's gone through the, the phase of Tennant and Smith, where it was hope and make up for what I've done and, and the guilt and, and stuff like that. And now Capaldi's just thinking, I've got to live with it. I've just got to do the best I can. Mm. Yeah. No, I understand. I, I get you. I, I think the, I suppose for want of a better term, that this sort of edginess to the Doctor coming through is something that is always there in New Who. I think you get, I mean, you, you, even you look at Chris Eccleston, for example, he's quite smiley and he's got the sort of rubbery face in certain scenes. But then there are other <laughs> moments where where he shows real fear and then also real aggression as well. And I like we saw in Dalek. Yes, exactly. That we covered a few weeks back. Yes. That is, I think that contrast between what we see and then that sort of flash of those, those other personality traits, I guess, are are quite important to the character's development. Whereas with Peter Capaldi, I seem to remember them being, like you said, a little bit more closer to the surface than the other incarnations potentially. Mm. And it, it might not even be as deep as that because sometimes it is just that he didn't 
bother or couldn't communicate the full plan for mm. whatever reason. Whereas before, there'd have been a very quick, a very excited, okay, I'm going to do this, this, and this, and then break and go do the thing. Oh, we did the thing, yay! With Capaldi, yeah. it's just you, there, me, here, you, there. Don't ask me questions. <laughs> you know, yeah. don't, don't bother asking questions, just do what I tell you to do. <laughs> it's, yeah. So it's almost like a... It's, it's almost a bit like a twatty teacher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess. <laughs> I mean, something we normally touch upon as well as we sort of look at different doctors for the first time is the, the sort of slightly different changes to the intro of the show, the graphics and the the iconic theme music. Yes. Now, what did you think of the Peter Capaldi era for this this season, this episode? It's one of the better modern ones. Uh, for me, I really like the uh, the cogs and the clockwork that come up uh, first. Yeah, that's what I've and got. Then, yeah, and you have the spiralized like clock face Roman numerals, and they've brought back having his face appear, mm-hmm. which is a great nod to the uh, to the classic who's that you know that we've seen uh, on the show. So yeah, I'm I'm off. And they've got, oh, they've got the CGI TARDIS uh, floating around as well. Um, yeah, I'm off for this intro. I really like it. Yeah, I, I'll tell you what, pretty much everything you've said there, I've got noted down myself. The, the clock face, the Roman numerals, the spiralling dangs, or giving that impression that you're sort of tumbling through time, so to speak. Yeah, absolutely brilliant. And, and the theme tune as well, it almost reminds me of when we covered the Patrick Triton story a little while back, and mm-hmm. the theme tune was very much almost stripped back and unhaunting. Now, this one mm-hmm. obviously being more modern isn't as stripped back, but the, the actual melody, the actual tune itself, is pushed forward and has that more haunting aspect to it than we've seen in other new who's, I guess. Yeah. And, it, and again, it fits with that slightly darker, more hard nosed approach that the doctor has throughout the whole series. It's, it is very much reflective of, uh, of, his, of the character, particularly yeah. in this episode as well. Yeah, definitely. Well, let's, let's get into the episode. We, like I said, like I mentioned, we start with an old lady dying with a, with a mummy, <laughs> traipsing towards her no one else in this train carriage can can see the mummy and there's a clock running in the corner which is a reoccurring theme throughout the episode 66 seconds is is apparently the time frame you have from when you see it mm. to when you die and just before we get into it the mummy itself looks incredible i think yeah the, yeah absolutely the rotting, the rotting flesh and then the, the the bandages hanging off but uh, the guy who plays the, the mummy is a fellow called jamie hill who has been involved in Doctor Who since 2011, who played one of the silence in The Impossible Astronaut and Day of the Moon and throughout the Smith era. Uh, he was one of the uh, the monks in the Capaldi Threes part, which was uh, Extremis. And he was okay. also a Mondasian Cyberman in the Capaldi, in the Capaldi Two part, uh, Doctor Falls and World Enough and Time. Oh, why? Yeah, so he's a masked villain at numerous occasions then. <laughs> professional, professional monster actor. Yeah, brilliant. That's, that's what I hope that's what it says on his CV. I really do. If it says anything other than that, he needs to change it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we get the Doctor uh, and Clara arriving in the TARDIS and they step out onto this train, effectively talking about it being a nice, peaceful trip, one last occasion together before Clara sort of goes off for her new life. Clara is dressed in proper i suppose it's this 1920s get up isn't it i suppose it's like that kind um, of yeah it's like like flapper girl mm. flapper girl dressed doctors suited and booted they look bloody good the pair of them 
Yes, yes, they do. Yes, you want you need to encourage me to say Clara looks good, mate. <laughs> <laughs> she is gorgeous. Yeah, <laughs> they go. Uh, they 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 walk through the train and enter the carriage where there's lots of esteemed guests. We find out lots of lots of professors, teachers, experts, and scientists, and so on. Whilst they're playing "Don't Stop Me Now" by Queen on the band, and I was like, okay, what is that? It took me a little while to twig what that song actually was they were playing. I thought, I, I know it, but it took me a moment to sort of recognise it, you know? Yeah, it was in that very sort of like um, old style, like lounge singer, not like mm. not like your working men's club, you know, Vic, Vic Reeves pub singer uh, style. But yeah, really, it, it was a really nice take on it, actually. Mm. I, I quite liked it. I like it when, uh, when they do cover versions of songs like that. Yeah, it was really good. good. It was good. A bit like the Doctor in this bit as well, where he's saying it's an exact replica of the Orient Express except bigger and in space. And yeah. the rails are actually hyperspace hyper ribbons. But in, every, but in every other respect, identical. <laughs> yeah. There's a few moments with the Doctor, actually, in these early scenes that I really enjoy. One of them, when he's looking out the window, at it comes over the tannoy, doesn't it? Everyone look out the window to the right of the train, left of the train, whatever it was, and you'll see whatever attraction it could potentially be there. And the Doctor looks out, and it, it sounds proper old man-like looking out across, you know, this, this scenery. I mean, where I live in Gloucester, there's so many fields and farms and hills that have been converted into housing estates. Literally in the last 10 years, it's like a proper buildup all around me. So the saying that you all, you hear people of a certain generation say all the time here is, I can remember when all this was fields. And it is that yep. cliche, stereotype, comical thing. The doctor saying, I can remember when all this was planets. It yeah. was just, oh, it just tickled me. I thought it was so funny. But it was, it's, it's at this point where they're having two different conversations because Doctor's already called out Clara's sad smile and says that she's malfunctioning. Mm. <laughs> and he's having yeah. trying to have this conversation about Obsidian, a planet of perpetual darkness, and Clara's there saying, I thought I hated you, you know. And he's trying to change the subject. And that's when Clara utters a line that I've actually used and taken on board and applied to my own life. Hatred is too strong an emotion to waste on someone you don't like. Yeah. And that yeah. is such a great thing to hear because it's so true. There is no point wasting the effort and the energy of hating someone or something. If, you know, there's just no point. It's it's too much of a pain in the ass. Basically, I'm lazy. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's very true. It's, it's, it's something that... I wish I'd twigged on to a long, a long, long time ago. Again, it's it's a it's a maturity thing, I guess. You reach a certain age and you realise your dad was right when you were a kid, and he his dad was right when he was a kid. And it is that thing of why you're wasting time and energy hating on something. It's and it's spot on. And it's something that yeah. you know I tell my kids, and they're just like, yeah, whatever, dad. When they reach my age, I'll be like, you know what, my dad was right as well. Yeah, just go. Oh, fuck, he was right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, the, the the doctor and Clara eventually. They go off to their separate rooms, don't they? They go off to bed. Yes. Uh, the doctor is talking to himself. Clara is on the phone to Mr. Pink, uh, yep. which is her boyfriend back home, as, as uh, you explained, Dan. The doctor talking to himself here, again, tickles me, because he's almost having an argument, answering his own questions, contradicting himself and so on. It's a real nice trait, I think, that certain doctors do, and Peter Capaldi does it so well. It just made me think of uh, Gollum and Smeagol from uh, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, I've, I've never seen it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I've never seen it. <laughs> well, 
course, of course you haven't. Why, you know, why would you take nine hours out of your life to watch the three of the best movies ever made? Um, <laughs> prick. <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thanks a lot. <laughs> oh, I feel Mags is pain now. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah. Um, it's a really good thing. He's, you know, he's, cause I think we've all done that at times when we're trying to figure something out, even, you know, just in our own heads, like asking a question. No, that's stupid. I, this is the answer, obviously. Um, but yeah, I do quite like it. And then he gets himself dressed up, dressed back up, thinks about knocking on Clara's door, but just decides to leave her. Doesn't want to involve mm. her in the uh, in the shenanigans because it's supposed to be a nice, chilled sort of last hurrah, which was interesting. Yeah. Then as soon as he's off screen, she appears and like trying to knock, trying to wake him up, and, uh, and gets uh, gets dragged into uh, a passing woman's. Uh, it's the uh, it's the daughter of the. Uh, of the dead woman, she sees yes. her walking past, just brandishing Amazing. a, brand, <laughs> yeah, amazing, yeah, brandishing a, brandishing a stiletto. Mm. Yeah, yeah, she's walking. She, gets, she sort of just follows her and starts trying to talk to her and find out what's what's up with her and if it, is everything okay. She, she gets distracted very quickly. She does, <laughs> don't she? You know, she does. It's oh, like... <laughs> um, sorry. One thing I picked up on in the uh, the conversation with uh, she had with Danny was when she called, when she called it dumping the doctor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and he, and he sat there, he's like. Well, you can't dump him. He's not your boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good catch there, Danny. Make sure you keep hammering that home. <laughs> you can't compete with the doctor, mate. Don't even try. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we basically have our our two, I suppose, heroes of the piece, Clara and the Doctor, separated. Then Clara is walking with Maisie to look for the body of the old lady who passed away because they yeah. won't let her see the body. The Doctor is just exploring in general, I suppose, trying to find out what's going on and just having a little nose about. And he stumbles across, well, Frank Skinner. <laughs> well, he doesn't. Frank, Frank Skinner stumbles across him. Mm, yes, yeah. As he's fiddling with the chair that the old lady died in. Yeah, and Excelsior Life Extender, I think it was called. Is that is that right, the chair? Yeah, yeah. And uh, Frank Skinner um, comes across pretty sinister. Yeah, first time totally. he's lovely. He's got that very sort of calm tone to his voice, but that he knows that somebody you you just know he knows something by the tone of his voice. Lovely bit of kit, isn't it? Mm. Like driving around in a portable hospital. Yeah, like, and it's, what do you know? <laughs> it is kind of. Uh, I've, it must be an intentional thing they've done here to sort of make you suspect him because you do yeah. for a little while, but you don't really know why. You don't think you don't think he's the mummy because that doesn't work. But you don't... Is he the driving force behind the mummy? Is he what's brought the mummy? You don't really know what it is about him, but there's something that's not quite right early on, isn't there? It's it's the tone of his voice and, and, and the body language. Mm. He looks he looks ready to fight, basically. Mm. He's got that... So he's, he's a little bit tense, but his, his voice is almost eerily calm. Yeah. But they have a great exchange where they're saying, uh, I know that when I see uh, see somebody fiddling with a chair that someone just died in, I play my cards close to my chest. Yeah. <laughs> the doctor responds. Oh, he says, uh, doctor basically says he'd do the same. Yeah. And then it's, a, it's, a long, it's, a, yeah it's a longer winded version where they both sort of look at each other and just go, okay, all right, we'll see how this plays out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and they just sort of shake out. Yeah, it, it's great. I mean, Frank Skinner's brilliant anyway, but in this, I think he's really, really good as well, isn't he? Yeah, he is. It's, it's one of the reasons I wanted to uh, to revisit it because I, I came, we'll get to it, but I came out of this one in Perkins to be like the TARDIS mechanic. Mm. I thought that would have been, I thought it would have been a great addition to uh, 
to the show. Yeah, I got that. I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit here, I suppose. But at the end, there is like a tease, isn't there? Where he's going to join the TARDIS crew or not. And he kind of declines it. Well, it's uh, not a tease. Yeah. It's an offer. Well, yeah, basically, yeah, yeah. And he, he effectively declines the offer, doesn't he? And it, it is a shame because I think, yeah, he would have been great. But at the same time, it, it's kind of, I appreciate him. I think maybe we appreciate him more in this episode because we didn't have the chance to to get sick of him. If that makes sense, mm. yeah. You know, maybe, maybe it was. Maybe it was a. It was just a character written for what this one episode, and how often in you know throughout Doctor Who, throughout the series, how often does the TARDIS actually necessarily need a mechanic? Mm. Yeah. So I can see why, but yeah, it, it would have been good to have him maybe for two, three episodes because, like we, where the episodes following Dalek that we looked at, um, Adam joins them for at least one episode. Um, yeah, and he gets that funny thing coming out of his forehead, doesn't he? Yeah, he was such a dipshit in that episode, he deserved it. Yeah, yeah totally. <laughs> I didn't like him. I didn't like him at all. No, a little creep. Anyway. Anyway, we <laughs> the Doctor is... that He kind of comes across a an expert in this kind of scenario whose name escapes me right now, I'm afraid. Professor Emil Mohaus. Right. Alien, and he explains uh, the myth of the foretold. Yeah, and this is uh, Christopher Villiers. Right. one of my tropes here, who was also in Doctor Who in 1983. He played Hugh in The King's Demons, which is one of Peter Davidson's. Okay. Now, if I I would have seen that because I'm a big Pete Davidson fan. And we're going to get to a Peter Davidson story very well, not very soon. I'm probably going to have it saved up till, towards the end because I love it. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's not that one, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, we get the, the explanation of the myth of the foretold here from this gentleman and, and why the number 66 occurs before it dies and, and why, and all these, these sort of things. And there's a moment here again, that it's just pure doctor who, where the doctor gets like, well, it looks like a cigarette case, but it's a cigarette yeah. case from, from that time, from that sort of early 1900s era, the sort of metal clip open case. And he opens it and I'm looking, I'm thinking, is he offering him a cigarette? And he, cause that's just what you assume. Cause it does look that way. And he's got jelly babies all lined up inside the case. Yeah. Oh my god, that I loved that so much. Yeah, I thought you would. It, it was um, if I'm was it Tom Baker's doctor who had the yes. uh, the jelly babies. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love any like sort of callback to that. There's uh, this with the cigarillo case is brilliant. Um, Matt Smith has uh, a moment when there's this, this living flesh stuff that's that's cloned him, but the the flesh is having trouble keeping all his. Um, keeping all the regenerations and all the memories and, okay. and and coping with it. And at one point you do just hear Tom Baker's voice out of Man Smith's, uh, Matt Smith's mouth, uh, offering someone a jelly baby. Brilliant. Yeah. Oh, that's, that's great. It's awesome. But yeah, this, uh, the, the myth of the foretold first appeared 5,000 years ago. There are allegedly, uh, riddles or secret words to make it stop. People have tried fighting it, but it, it's always the same 66 seconds and boom, you're dead. Yeah, and you, you get the explanation as well, or, or we've noticed anyway, that when the mummy's about to appear, there's a bit of a trouble with the electrics and so on, the lights flicker and, 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 and this sort of situation. And again, that to me, that to me adds to the peril, that to me adds to the the scariness. When we spoke about it the other week, when we were talking about proper sort of horror and so on, mm. it's not always seeing the monster that's the scary thing. It's not the blood and guts and gore from a horror film that's necessarily the scary thing. It's the anticipation of seeing the monster. It's, it's where is the monster? Yeah. So when these lights flicker 
and we now know what the flickering lights mean. That to me is like, oh, here we go. It's like the first time you hear that in Jaws. Straight away, you're like, right, okay, and you're on edge because you know what's happening. It's like a bat signal for shit going down. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it really is. But yeah, we get um, we get another countdown start after the yeah. uh, after the cigarillo case full of jelly babies. Um, the mummy appears in the kitchens, going after one of the chefs, um, and it's sort of interspliced with the doctor still having this conversation about the photo with the professor. Um, but the chef's grabbed a knife. He's backing away. Takes refuge in the meat locker, and there's a great shot where it just sort of pans out slightly, and you can just about see the mummy behind a big like side of beef yeah in this freezer just reaching out for this guy and it's like oh look look (laughs) it's awesome isn't it yeah um but throughout the whole thing the doctor's asking this professor what's the most um interesting thing about the foretold um and then the doctor reveals that the answer is the fact that this guy was here to witness it this professor because the doctor's twigging oh no hang on there's a lot of uh Lots of sciencey type people are you? Yeah, yeah. Obviously, he explains in a short while what that means, but that's his first real kind of realization, isn't it? On screen, that he's he sort of okay. There's all these experts here. Like, why are they all here? Why am I even here, so yeah. to speak? Because we find out in in a later point of the episode that he was actually invited there previously as well. So that's you know quite an interesting aspect to it effectively everyone is there for a reason it's not just a trip on a train is it no no it's not but we'll uh, we'll get into that in a bit because all throughout this uh clara and Maisie have got themselves locked in the uh, cargo hold where the uh, where the bodies are allegedly being held yeah and, uh, by smashing the lock with a stiletto heel yeah yeah doesn't matter how fancy and, doesn't matter how fancy and digital your locks are it can be beaten with a shoe yeah, just give it a wallop, and then they walk, and then they're stuck in there, and then there's effectively a mummy's tomb, a, a, sar- a sarcophagus. That's right, yeah. I can't pronounce it, so I'm going to leave you to do that. <laughs> in the corner. But it's got a couple of lights on it, like it is a bit more a bit more futuristic than the, the actual mummy would dictate, I guess. Yeah, it's... Um... It's a bit of a sciencey sarcophagus. It's the best sciencey sarcophagus. <laughs> Try saying that ten times fast. I can't say it once. <laughs> you just did. Okay, well that's it then. I've used it up for this episode. I'm not gonna try again. <laughs> I've used my one correct pronunciation. <laughs> we get the they're sat down for a little while, aren't they? Just having a little bit of a heart to heart, Clara and mm. Maisie about it, about issues with the doctor that Clara's experiencing and and so on whilst the doctor is then speaking to the captain of the train, because the captain is trying to effectively keep a lid on all that is going on. He's saying this guy died because of various other reasons. Nobody talk about mummies. Let's keep this hush hush, please. It was a heart attack. Nothing more. Yes, exactly. Exactly. A bit of a cover up, I suppose. Sort of keep people calm, I guess. Hmm. When the doctor brings out the psychic paper again, I bloody love the psychic paper, Dan. I love the I love Capaldi's reaction to it as well, where he, he says, "I'm your worst nightmare." Holds it out. <laughs> of all things, this this captures a mystery shopper. Is like, am I? Yes, a mystery shopper. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like <laughs> that's so random. But okay, he's let the, he's let the guy's own sort of subconscious <laughs> pick, I suppose. Yeah. But. <laughs> the doctor's there giving it. I need an extra pillow in my cabin. Uh, there's a disappointing breakfast bar. Oh, and all the people die. Yeah, <laughs> that's my list of issues. <laughs> yeah, 
in order of importance. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so the next bit we have the Doctor and the Captain uh, in the office, and the Doctor's making assumptions about him, saying, oh, wounded in battle, honourable discharge, had the fight mm. knocked out of him, thought this would be a cushy desk job, and the Doctor essentially leaves in disgust. And who's there to meet him? Our buddy Perkins, who's got him a passenger manifest, a plan of the train, list of the stops over the past six months. And the doctor's there, again, just to make you th- think of Perkins. He's just like, mm, that was a bit quick. And he just says, oh, maybe. <laughs> Perkins says, maybe I'm the mummy. Or maybe I was already looking into it. Yeah. <laughs> and it's just like that. <laughs> it, it, it's brilliant, isn't it? Because it takes those sort of initial thoughts we had of is Perkins involved? Is he, is he good? Is he bad? Whatever. And he just makes you think, Oh, don't be so bloody silly. It's a real clever sort of throwaway line, but delivered so well. Yeah. And it's, um, it's a testament to Frank Skinner, really, Mm. you know, guy who's effectively made his name in comedy and, and for one, world cup song that's or euro song that's been repeated for 26 years <laughs> yeah yeah exactly still a great still a great tune though bang it out every couple of years and then qualifies great stuff <laughs> yeah it's the hope that kills us <laughs> oh totally totally <laughs> uh the, <laughs> the doctor is explaining then about the experts on the train isn't he? he's very openly pointing out you're a scientist you're this you're that why are we all here i guess yes yeah um and that's why uh sorry that's after the uh after the doctor's uh been calling clara in fact he calls her and says it's breakfast time but uh he's jabbering away and then clara, clara finally shouts that they're trapped Yes, and we get. We oh, get we'll let her get a word. Yeah, yeah, we'll let her get a word in, and then, but as he's on the phone, the sarcophagus starts to open, and you're thinking, "Oh God, mm. <laughs> we haven't we haven't seen a light flicker, but this thing's opening up, and there's just some bubble wraps and light, a uh, bubble wrap and lights in there." Yeah, and that's when the doctor gets found out that there's no mystery shopper, and the doctor himself gets accused of being uh, being behind the killings. Yeah, it, seeing the bubble wrap actually with the lights in it was quite interesting because in like say, I don't know the Tom Baker era, that would have been the villain. That would have sufficed as, <laughs> as the on-screen bad guy. That would have been, you know, I've seen something like that climb up the side of a lighthouse in like a Tom Baker tale. So it's <laughs> yeah, but it, it lines up uh, the sarcophagus opening up lines up with the next uh, the next death. So while the doctor's in custody, it's the uh, the lights flicker. The foretold appears, and uh, there's one of the guards, uh, guards shooting at it in a mm. in a cabin full of uh, passengers. Yeah, and again, it. I think this guard, obviously, the guard is just for want of a better term, he's an extra, isn't he? He's got a very small part. He's there to be killed by the mummy and so on. But I think the guard, the sheer look of fear on the guard as he mm. falls and he's shooting and so on, really helps set the tone. And the, the suspense for what this bad guy is. We spoke about it when we looked at the Sylvester McCoy episode with how characters like Ace and, and other sort of people on that on in that serial would try and run away from the, the big cat people on a on a horse and all that silly nonsense. Mm. And they'd stumble and they'd fall and they, it wasn't really it just made them look stupid. This guy here, he's got nowhere to run, but he's still trying to escape. He's still trying to stand his ground whilst trying mm. to escape. He's trying to fight back whilst trying to escape. The whole time looking terrified. It just really shows the difference, I think, between this guy here being confronted with the mummy to what we saw in the Sylvester McCoy episodes from 89. It's a more natural reaction, I think, in uh, in this one, because fair enough, he's gone on his ass, but he's just seen a mummy that mm. nobody else can see in the middle of his place of work 
you're going to fall over in shock, but he's had the wherewithal to back away to give himself time to draw his gun and continue backing away as he's firing. That's mm. somebody who's obviously trained in that sort of thing. So although he's terrified, muscle memory is kicking in and he's still trying to go down fighting. It, it's, I thought it was, yeah, it was brilliant. It was one of those little touches that really makes a big difference. Because if that had yeah. been, been half-arsed, we might not have noticed it. It had just been a throwaway thing. But as it is, it may, it just made the whole thing that much more tense. Mm. Yeah. And again, t- tense is a good way of wording it with regards to the, the villain of the piece, the mummy. And it's relentlessness. It just kind of, when that clock appears, mm. by this stage, we know someone is going to die. It's yeah. not going to stop. It cannot be hurt with bullets. It just keeps coming and coming and coming. And then it'll just disappear and appear in a meat locker next to you or whatever it's going to keep going until it gets its prey isn't it it cannot be bargained with it cannot be reasoned with and it absolutely will not stop until you are dead hmm. terminator yep. yeah <laughs> yeah it's a terminator in bandages <laughs> no, that, that was a line from terminator <laughs> ah okay fair enough i have never seen terminator. Never seen. oh you have oh. I, have, I have seen terminator yeah yes. i've seen terminator one and two and i love them both they're great you don't need to watch anything after that no, I'm not going to. I've seen a bit. I spoke about it with uh, Magsy on Shane Wrestling, but I've seen a bit of the third one. Not going to watch any more of it. <laughs> nah, you're better off with the foretold. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> the the doctor again has, has said here about the all these experts and so on, and the, the train effectively starts talking to the computer. So he starts talking to, to everyone. Then doesn't he? Gus is the oh, thing me Gus. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the train starts to alter. The the setting that is set up to look like the Orange Express fades away to be more like a a, a scientific sort of experimental scenario, a, a lab, I suppose. Yeah. And some of the people around them disappear as well because they were apparently hard holograms to just assist with the, the, the sort of illusion of where they were to sort of tempt these people onto the train to help fight or get rid of or expose, I suppose, the foretold. Oh, they're there to ascertain its weaknesses for capture, after which they will reverse engineer its abilities. Yes, there we go. That's the more sci-fi time travel. <laughs> <wibbly Wibbly>. Wibbly. <laughs> <laughs> Throw some big words in and hope for the best. That's right. Effectively, the doctors then, we, we twig along with the doctor, don't we, that that's what they have to do. That that's the plan. And yeah. the, they're all going to get bumped off one by one until... They were sort of, I suppose, fulfill this challenge or quest they have been given by Gus, this mission, or they're all dead one way or the other. It's going. This is the way it's going to be. Yeah, there's a there's an ancient uh, the Doctor of Twigs that they can't capture it either. Uh, so they can't control it. So how did they get it on board? And mm. Gus says there's an ancient scroll, and it's over there. Uh, the foretold appears in the vicinity of that scroll. Uh, they talk about throwing it out of the airlock, blah blah blah, um, and we get another light flicker. Oh no! And straight away, straight away, the mood changes. It's so simple, but so yeah. clever at the same time. <laughs> what gets me about this one is it's um, it's Professor Mohouse this time. Yeah, he's so calm at the, at the start of this. It's a, it's, it's a, there's doctors there saying, "Oh, if I can only get a look at it, you know, I'd, I'd love to know what it looks like." And the professor says, "Oh, it's approximately one point eight meters tall." Though well, seeing it in the flesh isn't nearly as rewarding. Uh, the bandages are ragged, and the doctors just just pumping in for the smallest detail just for any 
snippet of information that says there's some there's some leathery flesh visible, mm. and that's when the professor cracks and he starts starts bargaining for his life. Yeah, and the doctor's there basically telling him to focus, which is again part of that whole that cold sort of ex, that cold veneer of the of this version of the doctor. Yeah, because he's already written him off, hasn't he? Basically, he's already he's already yeah. decided. Okay, this guy's done. So let's just get what we can before he's actually actually dead. Yeah, he expects expects this guy to make peace with his impending demise, just so he can tell the doctor a couple of more things about about the foretold. And mm. the the professor rightly turns around and says, "This is my life, my death, and I'll fight for it how I want." <laughs> yeah, fair, which is a fair shake, to be fair. You know, yeah. to be honest. Yeah, pretty much. But it was um, it was the best example so far in this episode of of the Doctor. It, it's a very, it, in fact, that's the better word for it. It's it's a cold, detached pragmatism. Okay, he's just look. He's assessed the situation. He's got. He's all, He's done. This is what I need. This is how I get it. Fuck it. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's very. I suppose a very logical, methodical way. Uh, I suppose, in a way, similar to the mummy itself, it's very methodical, uh, and it's it's got it knows what it has to do. It knows the end game of what it's trying to do. The same as the doctor, the doctor knows the end game of what it's trying to achieve, what he's trying to achieve, and it's a case of okay, I'm going to get to that point. What happens between the second one and the end is kind of irrelevant as long as I get the end result I require. I suppose as long as the ends justify the means, he's willing to bend the rules that the previous doctors wouldn't have even thought mm. about bending. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. I mean, the doctor speaks with Clara on the phone as well. And Clara's handing over numerous details of other ships that she's found, isn't she? Yes. Yeah. Uh, other ships that have had uh, crew members die and, and been marked, essentially marked like it was a school project of... Yeah, like poor, poor good, well, yeah. Promising and, and stuff like that. And all the while, Gus is demanding that the uh, that the call be terminated, mm. which is uh, quite eerie. And then we see uh, the kitchens uh, decompressing. Yeah, and, and, the, and the staff are, yeah, just done with. Just jettisoned out of the airlock. And mm. there's, there's a, a brilliant but awful moment where you hear and see the, the pots and pans hit the window and they look outside and see all the bodies. Yeah. But even then, the doctor doesn't seem too bothered. Previously, you'd have seen like a, a close-up and an angry and an angry face from Tennant or Smith. Yeah, this one, or just, some, just gets, some remorse just or some, it. yeah. Yeah, he just gets on with it. It's, and then Gus calls them the less valuable passengers. And that triggers something in the doctor's mind, doesn't it? He's like, "How does the mummy? How does the mummy select who to go with next?" I suppose, yeah. With regards to with regards to this group of experts that they've assembled, why is why are the people getting bumped off in that order? And we find it's because it's it's a case of the weakest first, isn't it? Anyone with medical issues, anyone with long-standing health problems, they're seen as being the weaker of the party and they're kind of more, maybe more expendable or, or disposed of first, I suppose. Yeah. It, it, it detects, uh, detects physical and psychological uh, ailments effectively, which mm. in a weird way is a great way to sort of normalize and bring to light uh, mental health conditions. Um, yeah. Because the, 
you got the, you know, the, the Mrs. Pip was over a hundred, so she's old and frail. The uh, the chef uh, had a rare blood disorder. The guard had synthetic lungs, but the professor had no physical ailments, but he had uh, anxiety disorder and, and panic attacks. So the the foretold is picking off those sort of ailments in order, which sparked something in the captain because he's got PTSD. Yes. He was the sole survivor of a bombing. Um, and as someone who's struggled with a variety of things, anxiety, depression, bits and pieces for a good long while, it was something where it was like, yeah, it's, it's basically saying mental conditions can affect just as much as physical, which I thought was a, a just, it, it wasn't overstated. It wasn't on the nose. It was just slotted in there. And it was, uh, yeah. it was good to see. And it was, it wasn't, you're right when you say it was slotted in there, but it wasn't almost throwaway or anything like that. It was put on, I suppose, cause it's working down a list. It's, it's mm. on, it, it's basically like the, the mummy is saying that these are on par with each other. And I'm yeah. just working through them one at a time, whether yeah, it is physical much. or mental. And I thought that was that was really well done. Yeah, it, like I said, it wasn't overstated, it wasn't on the nose, but it wasn't throwaway. It struck mm. that that perfect balance. Yeah, yeah. It also, it also gives the doctor a chance to be a bastard again, because uh, when uh, the captain divulges his PTSD, uh, the doctor says, "Oh, means you're next. Good to know. Of course, not for you. You're going to die. But I mean, for for us, from a research point of view." Yeah, so cold. And again, I've said it a few times on this episode, but so throwaway again, isn't it? He's just a throwaway comment. Like, okay, well, that's that. Then we know that we know the crack for the next person, don't we? It's it's like somebody who's not funny trying to tell a joke or somebody, we've all encountered these you know, people in, in a working life or, or friendship group who, when they try and join in on the banter, it doesn't quite work. Mm, yeah. It's a little bit like that. Yeah. An awkwardness, a coldness <laughs> as well. It's, yeah, I know what you mean. Part of Capaldi's character, Capaldi's doctor's character, is that he isn't good socially. Mm. Um, Clara has to remind him to not be a dick or has to remind him not to say certain things or has flashcards for him to make like polite conversation <laughs> and shit like that. So it is, uh, is very much on brand. Um, Which I think is brilliant because it is a change from what we've had, isn't it? It is a change from mm. Tennant. It is a change from Smith because they were... I suppose more outgoing, more friendly, more more smiley, for want of a better term. Tennant was effortless in every situation. It was just you could tell he'd be a laugh to go on a night out with. You know mm. that version of the Doctor. He'd be a good laugh. He'd be everybody's mate. He'd know everybody. Smith was a little bit dorky, but ultimately couldn't give a toss. He was just like you say. He was quite. He was still quite extroverted. This this Doctor's just like I. Don't know what how the hell people interact. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ultimately, the, the prediction of the captain being next is correct because the captain's next to die, isn't he? Yeah, pretty much. Um, says that it gives him a headache just looking at it. Uh, he draws his gun, and Doctor points out that didn't work before, and he says, "What what kind of soldier would I be if I died with bullets in my gun?" And he fires like off he, a few shots. It's almost like he gets a bit of closure potentially. Yeah, he does. It's it's a bizarrely sort of peaceful end for him, really. Because mm. he says, for the record, it didn't flinch as he as he shoots him. We get a great visual of the foretold passing through the doctor. Yes, because he's trying just to walk, yeah yeah, and, and it comes the hand comes through his face. That was fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Love that we, we've talked about some ropey CGI and ropey practical effects. 
this looked brilliant and still mm. does. Um, but yeah, the captain says he's saying not a bad way to go, blood pumping, enemy at the gates and all that. And he says, and, and thank you, doctor, for waking me up. It's, it's yeah. reaching for me. His hands are on my head, and that's his last words. He's gone. Yeah, again, I suppose it does come across almost like a soldier who who couldn't do what he wanted to do in a past occasion, getting a bit of closure. I thought it was quite a as deaths go, quite a nice death, I suppose. And that's a funny, t- funny term, really, isn't it? But <laughs> well, the same thought crossed my mind. So mm. yeah, but then it it just gives them more uh, more information. So the doctor's brain's going a mile a minute. But this is when Perkins, I think. I think this is where he realises exactly what the Doctor's like and why ultimately why he doesn't join the TARDIS crew. It's because Perkins says, a man just died in front of us, can we not just have a moment? Yes, exactly, yeah. <laughs> and the Doctor basically says, no time for mourning. And he's then he launches into this arrogant speech about how he, if he had a minute with this thing, it'd be all over. And Perkins calls him out and says, I can't tell if you're a genius or incredibly arrogant. And the Doctor admits on a good day he's both. Which is so true. When you look back at, I suppose, so many of the doctors, it's a trait that you do get with lots of them. You know, the the arrogance is there, but also the genius is there as well. You you get it, obviously, with Capaldi here. You you see it with William Hartnell early on. Tom Baker has a sort of swagger to him at times. You do get that. Well, Colin Baker especially is incredibly arrogant as the doctor. You do get that kind of arrogance to a lot of portrayals of this character. And I think it's a, it's a natural. It can be a, nat- a natural thing where when you know that you're the most intelligent person in a room mm. at any given time, it'd be hard not to be arrogant. I wouldn't know anything about that. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's only it's only happened once or twice in my life, and that was when I was. That's when I've been left alone with my nieces who are toddlers. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> and even then, it was a close run thing. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> Uh, we basically find out then that Maisie is is going to be next, isn't she? Maisie is going to be the next target of the mummy in in theory, with the way they're sort of working through the um, the health issues, I guess, and, and making a checklist, I suppose. And it's yeah, essentially, it's because of a grief, which is when you think about it, that's a horrifying sort of idea that this thing that's going after people who are who are sick mm. is then going to prey on this woman because. She's mourning the loss of her grandmother. Yeah. And the guilt and everything that goes with grief is going to result in potentially her dying. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Again, it's, it's sort of dipping the toe into mental health issues, I suppose, isn't it? And sort yeah. of shining a light upon certain topics that way. Absolutely. I mean, anybody who's who's ever lost someone knows, what, knows that feeling of... of guilt, despair, hopelessness, just the myriad of emotions that goes with it. Mm. And as soon as you you know what that feels like, it, it does make this this idea of a, a being that can take that and use it as a as an excuse to be to put your next on its hit list. That's a terrifying proposition, as I said. But yeah, it's it's mm. a great it's another normalization of, of mental health issues and, and things like that, which Doctor Who's always, at least in my mind, always been uh, been a great sort of proponent of, at least as far as the new Who goes. Mm, yeah, yeah, new Who, I, I agree, yeah. I mean, again, though, it leads to the Doctor being this incredibly cold and almost calculated individual, doesn't it? It's because he's effectively telling Clara, bring her here. 
and Clara's asking, "Can you save her?" And he's he's effectively telling Clara to well lie to lie to her and tell her that I can when I'm not sure I can. Yeah, who's it said? Probably, maybe, maybe not. Mm. And even Perkins is side eyeing him, but it, it's the fact that he essentially drags Clara down with him into this pit of you know of, of lying and and being just a horrible person, effectively. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's he, part he basically of gets Clara to lie, doesn't he? Yeah, he makes her like him, or as, as, or as she's uh, currently seeing him. And that's part of the reason why she can't do it anymore. She can't travel with him anymore because of the lies and the... the <laughs> I don't want to say evil, but the the coldness and the... and the, the lack... Of, I'm struggling to find the word. It's the... It's just the lack of giving a shit. Yeah. Lack of compassion, yeah. that's it. Compassion. Yeah, and you had compassion and warmth again with Matt Smith. So the difference must be quite jarring for somebody who has been around both in, in, in versions of the Doctor, I guess. Yeah, and well, Matt Smith, she was his impossible girl. You know, she saved mm-hmm. him and all that. And and it, to me, it never really. It was a very quick thing with Clara. It was sort of she's there, she's mysterious. Oh wait, she saves him, and now all of a sudden she's the centre of his universe. The Doctor, yeah. Matt Smith's Doctor. It seems to happen very quick, and that always bugged me. Um, I mentioned it in the previous episode, and I've been sort of ruminating, ruminating on it more, but that's what bugged me. But then this is very early days of uh, of Capaldi, so she's still figuring him out. Yeah, see, that was that is something I want to touch upon, actually. I mean, putting aside my, you know, my adoration for Jenna Coleman and so on, looking at um, <laughs> Clara as a character only, Mm. The when we set up this podcast and started recording these episodes and I set up the Twitter and the social media and so on for, for the show, that was my first kind of step into Doctor Who Twitter, I suppose, for want of a better mm. term. Now, I'm, I'm, there's various accounts on, on there, on the show's Twitter account that are new to me, despite being on Twitter for a long time with regards to the other podcasts that I've, I've, I've worked on. I was totally unaware of the quite... Sometimes, sometimes hatred towards the the Clara character. There's a lot of people out there who just don't like Clara as a character, don't like her story, and it never entered my mind before that that's a way of looking at it. Yeah, it was. I kind of had the thought the other day because again, I've been ruminating on this since we started the podcast. It's a little bit like Clara and Matt Smith is a little bit like seeing your mate as met a new girl or whoever, you know, your mates met someone mm-hmm. and they've, they've got the feet under the table very quickly. You know, right. they've, they imagine like they've moved. It, it feels like when, when people have met and they've moved, moved in together within a month and they're engaged within three months and it's like, well, well shit, what? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> how the fuck did that happen? That was a, a little bit for me looking back. That was how it was with Clara, but episode to episode, she's a really good companion. Hmm. it was just never it just sort of early days it never really played out on screen that she'd spent that much time with the doctor if that makes sense to justify the level of almost uh, intimacy is the wrong word almost feeling feeling like she belongs already yeah because they were never physically intimate but it's like it's like they'd been mates for been knocking around together for years Mm. you know 
and there was that there was a bit of that sexual tension there, but it never it didn't play out on screen like right away. It it it, it did just feel like she got feet under the table too quickly, despite being a good companion episode to episode. Looking over familiarity, maybe. Yeah, maybe. But it's it's not like it was one way that it was reciprocated. But as I've said before, it was like she turned up, she had a couple of episodes, and then by the end of that series, she was all of a sudden the most important thing in the world. They did, they did try and write it in like she scattered herself through this timeline just to save him. So that's going to mm. endear you. That's going to endear her to it. But it, it seemed to go from naught to a hundred very quickly. Yeah. Okay. But I, but I can't, like I said, Clara's. Clara's good episode to episode. She's, you know, she's quick-witted. She's smart. She's a bit of a, a bit of a badass when she wants to be, and you know, all the rest of it. But yeah, there was always that thing in the back of my mind, just going, "You, hang on, Rose was around forever mm. before the before you know, Tenant ended up basically in love with her. You've been here for five minutes, and you're the center of the universe." <laughs> No, I understand. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That that when you compare it to Rose, that makes a lot of sense what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah, I've probably yeah. phrased it really badly, but I, I wouldn't go so far as to say I hate Clara. <laughs> mm. Okay, fair enough. Uh, speaking of Clara here, though, she, she ends up finding out that the doctor, <laughs> the doctor didn't think this was a relaxing break. Didn't think this was a nice chilled out last trip together he kind of knew something was going on but didn't really know exactly what because he'd been invited as we mentioned earlier on in the episode been invited onto the train on numerous occasions yeah so she was a little bit miffed about that to be to, to be fair wasn't she well she said she's pissed off and she says you knew it was dangerous and the dog says well i didn't know but i certainly hoped and she she actually says <laughs> <laughs> yeah she says, see this is why i'm leaving you you've lied and lied again and you've made me your accomplice and while they're having this storming almost lovers tiff um, really going back to what they were saying earlier about a doctor not being a boyfriend uh, the lights flicker oh here it comes again here but it comes does. again but yeah you've got this blazing round the lights flicker and everything stops yeah everything stops such a simple but effective tool I guess <laughs> speaking the, of tools speaking of tools the doctor's got one <laughs> yes yeah and he takes Maisie's grief and sadness and and what's attracting the mummy i suppose that we mentioned a few minutes ago and puts it into his own mind doesn't he so he then becomes the target of the uh, the sort of the 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 mummy tracking these these old feelings doesn't he's and he's now carrying those emotions yeah he makes himself the uh the target and it's it's a it's a nice little twist and Mm. it brings along another great callback because the the mummy appears again the doctor looks at it and says, I'm the doctor, I'll be your victim this evening. Are you my mummy? <laughs> Absolutely fantastic. Which, yeah, Eccles, the call back to Eccleston and what inspired my fear of gas masks. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, it's, um, but that in itself, even though it's it's Doctor Who, Tenant, uh, sorry, Tenant, Capaldi's not going to regenerate mid-series. Mm. You know that's not going to happen. But you've got this 60-second countdown of how the hell is he going to talk his way out of this in 60 seconds? And it's tense. Like any countdown, I suppose, for any situation, like you watch a game show or a sporting event that's that's close, to coming towards the end of, of the time, the tension builds just purely because there is a countdown there. And you've got Frank Skinner in the background giving it 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 He, he, the, the doctor reasons out that, the, you know, there's markings visible beneath the bandages that are similar to the scroll, but 
it's a tattered piece of cloth attached to wood that you'd kill for. That doesn't sound like a squirrel. It sounds like a flag. Mm-hmm. If that sounds like a flag, if this is a flag, that means you're a soldier wounded in a forgotten war. And then he figures out that the, the soldier will be full of ancient technology, state-of-the-art phase, camouflage, personal teleporter. And then we get to 10 seconds. And he's like, Jesus Christ, will you just figure it out, man? <laughs> <laughs> this is all that tech inside you. It just won't let you die, will it? It won't mm. let the war end. It won't let you just stop until the war is over. And at about 0.01 seconds, it just shouts, we surrender. Which obviously ends any war in the mummy's head, doesn't it? It's, it's, it's done with. Yeah. And I, it was just a, that 60 seconds where... It, the doctor kind of proves his arrogance. You know, proves his arrogance is justified. Whereas sixty seconds with me, and it'll all be over. Mm, yeah, it's just like, oh, you bastard! You're right. <laughs> we get a moment there where the, the mummy salutes the doctor before kind of unraveling and disappearing. I guess the the train stroke Gus, the computer, now says, "Okay, it's been dealt with. Survivors aren't required. Survivors aren't necessary in this experiment." Oof, what a chilling so line. brutal, so, oh. And it just decides to take all the air out of, of the carriage they're in to, to kill everybody off. Everyone starts passing out one by one as this is happening. As the doctor is desperately trying to tinker with different bits of equipment, you know, the transporter that the mummy would have been using and so on. And then that's kind of it. The, the scene kind of ends there, doesn't it? And then we appear on a beach. Uh, not before the train explodes. Oh, yes, the train, yeah, the train goes <laughs> boom. Yes, that's right, the train goes boom. Big space boom. Yeah, big space boom. And <laughs> <laughs> I think I've seen them play a, a little gig somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> big space boom, yeah. The name oh, name of the um, the mummy itself, the, what is it, the fort, something of the foretold? The foretold, yeah. Yeah, the the actual name of, of, of what the mummy is as well, the, the myth of the foretold. That sounds like a really shitty prog band as well, doesn't it? Yeah, but you know, the, the, the foretold, if you just took that, I can see that in like your typical death metal graphic with like yeah. spikes and thorns coming off it and everything. You can't properly read, but you know it's a band name. It's like yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like every every death metal band logo ever. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but is, we're on a beach that could be a quarry. Yeah, oh, good old Doctor Who quarry. We're, we're coming across quite a few of those. It's great stuff. The doctor is sort of playing with a stick in some in the sand and messing around. Clara's fast asleep. Just I don't know why he would have took her out of the TARDIS if she was fast asleep just to put her on the floor. Trying to wake her up, picked her up, thought, I'll take her outside. You know, a bit of sea air might wake her up. Then he start, Yeah, I'm bored of carrying her, plonk. And just just dumped her down on the, this bit of you know, rocky area and well, it, 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 in, in the doctor's defence there was a stick to be played with. Well, easily distracted. There we go. (laughs) Uh, The doctor explains then that he did save everybody. He's dropped them all off somewhere nice and safe. Uh, And and that's kind of the end of the issues with the mummy, isn't it? That's done with. Yeah, that is done with. What I do like about it is that they never tie up who was behind um, Gus, who was Mm. behind the train. And they never have. They've never okay. tied up who was behind that. But in my head canon, like what I've decided to put together in my head, is that based on this is based on very recent Doctor Who. I've decided that that was uh, division, just very subtly trying to right. manipulate the Doctor into helping them because at that point the Doctor's not aware of division of division and that 
they ever existed or that he ever worked for them. So in my mind, that's division trying to trying to manipulate the doctor and get him to help them. Yeah. See, I, I, I they do tie up things like that though. Like long standing <sighs> issues. I hope eventually it does come. I, I, can't, I can't see it's been, been years, isn't it? But it's a, it's a bit late now and there's, there's been no other episodes like that really. Mm. If, if it came up in time and again, you know, if, if we'd seen multiple episodes with Gus and the doctor saying, oh, you know, you again, basically, then mm. it could have made a really nice story, like this uh, sort of sub story to sprinkle throughout a series or two and just tie up at the end. Mm. Yeah, no, it makes sense, mate. makes sense. The doctor then talking to Clara when she does awaken explains it was his plan all along to be heartless and have. <laughs> have Macy come to the carriage. He didn't want to let on that he might be able to save her or whatever and take the, the grief from her mind and all this sort of stuff. Clara's not hundred percent convinced with this tale. But yeah. Well, it's, it's when he, he does start saying he couldn't risk us finding out the plan and trying to stop him. Yeah. Fair. Um, and he's there, she's there saying you're pretending to be houses. Would you like to think that about me? Mm. And he, he basically said, he admits that he didn't know if he could save her. He couldn't save Quell. He couldn't save Morehouse. There was a good chance that Maisie would die as well. At which yeah. point, and then she says, at, at which point you'd have just moved on to the next and then, no, sorry, he says, he'd have just moved on to the next and the next until he beat it. Sometimes the only choices you have are bad ones, but you still yeah. have to choose. Yeah, yeah. And, and again, it does show, I suppose, the coldness that we mentioned previously, that he's almost, he's not excusing the coldness now. He's not excusing that kind of side to his character but he's almost explaining why it had to be that way in that scenario. And you do kind of understand, I think. It's, it's what I said before. It's, it's called pragmatism. He did what he had to do to save the people he saved. He couldn't, he couldn't save Quell. He didn't have enough information. He couldn't save Mohouse. He didn't have enough information. The only way to get more information was to do what he did. Yeah. And would have been to carry on with people, unfortunately, dying which is something that previous doctors especially knew who just wouldn't have been able to stomach. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I'll get you. We then, we're then back on the TARDIS with um, <laughs> Perkins brilliantly having a look under the control, yeah. uh, the control panels <laughs> and saying about this, there's a couple of things wrong down there, but you know, it's amazing technology and so on. And again, you just sort of look at the guy and you think, Oh man, I wish he was staying on. Even just for a couple of, for a couple of episodes, it's when he looks at it, he, but he, he freely admits to us, Perkins, he says, you know, amazing technology, I don't understand half of it. Yeah. But, and the, the doctor basically says he doesn't either. But one thing Perkins has noticed is there's a couple of drive stacks need replacing. Um, <laughs> you know, you should get somebody in and there's, it, it's, uh, they sort of dance around it for a second. Mm. And, uh, the doctor asks if Perkins knows anyone who'd take the job and he just says, no, I don't. Job like that could change a man. And the doctor yeah. says it does frequently. Oh, I don't know if that's referencing Capaldi's changing character since regenerating, or if it's referring to the number of doctors that, that there have been. I um, took it initially. I suppose. I suppose the comment on face value would mean the regenerations, the number of different doctors. I like what you but, did there. What's that? Sorry. Face value. Uh, face value. Oh yeah, that, I wish that was intentional. <laughs> yeah, the, the the comment initially, I suppose, at first glance would, would would sort of dictate it's about regenerations, changing the man. Mm. However, I do think there is that sort of subtlety to it that you mentioned there as well, underneath, with Capaldi, 
his character is different to what Clara experienced with Matt Smith, as we've mentioned numerous times already on this episode. And you have that changing aspect of his of his personality, of his character. I suppose that does come into it as well, potentially. Yeah, that, that was that was my read on it, and whether that's true or not, I don't think it matters. The intention matters. That's the way that that's the way that that sentence and that exchange works. Mm. Um, it doesn't matter how it works as long as it does. <laughs> yeah, which yeah. is, but we go from that into a great exchange between the Doctor and Clara, where she's asking him if he if he loves being the person to make the impossible choice, and he said, "Well, why would I?" And she says, "It's because." It's because it's what you do all day, every day. Yeah, and it, it doesn't have to, you know, it doesn't have to be that way. And she says it's like, and she sort of tails off, and he says, "Like what?" And she says, "It's like an addiction." And the doctor look just flatly looks at her and calls her out a little bit, and says, "Well, you can't tell if something's an addiction until you try to give it up." And, you, and she says, "You never have." And he just looks and says, "Let me let me know how it goes." Yeah, it's almost like an argument with like it's almost like an argument about properly breaking into an argument, isn't it? It's almost like getting little digs in, but almost in a, I don't know, not a full on way. It's quite passive aggressive. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but <laughs> by, from both of them, I think oh, from, yeah. Capal, from Capaldi's doctor, I think you get that anyway, quite a bit, mm. but Clara's, he's, Clara's giving it back here. He's, he's quite dry and sarcastic at points. He's Capaldi's doctor, which I appreciate because I can be a right sarcastic prat, um, but this is one thing you do. One thing I do like about Clara is she's not afraid to to give him the bollocks, you know, just yeah. to give him the business and call him out when he's being a dick. Um, and it was you know similar with Catherine Tate as well. But Catherine Tate, when you know Donna, when push came to shove, she was all mouth and and very rarely had any trousers to back it up. If you know what I mean, she I always. Um... I'd have to go back and look at more of Catherine Tate in Doctor Who, but I always just remember her being shouty, shouty. I've appreciated um, the Donna Noble episodes more as I've gotten older. Okay. When I was younger, because I think when those episodes had come out, I'd have been in my early 20s, maybe, around about that age. Okay. And obviously, being that age, you know fuck all about fuck all. <laughs> to be quite frank so a lot of the time I just saw Donna as like you said a bit you know just shouty shouty and a bit of a nag mm. when the character's actually much deeper than that it really is and then the episodes are a lot better than my 20 you know 20 year old pea brain had let me realise at the time um, but Clara has a similar attitude where she'll give the doctor the business doesn't need to shout to get a point across but it's almost like the 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 mentally and verbally sort of sparring. Mm. She throws out a point, he throws out a counterpoint. She throws something back at him, you know, and it's, 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 it's basically how you'd speak to, how you'd speak to your mate who's let somebody get, you know, get the feet under the table too fast. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> just, just, well, not just, no, but Sam, well, I've, I've had to have a similar conversation, like, are you sure you're doing the right thing? Well, you did this as a yeah, but that's not the point. What you know, what's what's the crack here? I'm worried about you. <laughs> yeah, no idea. Eventually, though, Clara takes a phone call from her boyfriend and she basically just sort of lies about it to the doctor and says that her boyfriend's okay. It was her, it was her boyfriend who had the issue with her traveling with the doctor. Now he's signed, so let's go. <laughs> I suppose. 
Yep, she fully bullshits. Mm-hmm. She made a big. She made a big thing about becoming the doctor's accomplice in lying uh, on the train. But now, because she doesn't really want to stop travelling, she just lies. Yeah, and that's and that's apparently fine. Well, very selective there with her with her fibs, I suppose. Not very much so. It's um, it's uh, pissed her off knowing when the doctor makes her a hypocrite, essentially. Mm. Yeah, that's very, what's yeah, totally. on it. But um, after this, so this was the eighth episode of the series. This series ran 12 episodes. Um, within two or three, I think they have two more episodes before the season finale, uh, two-parter, uh, in which uh, Danny Pink dies. I remember, yes. Yeah, I remember that. And we get we get the fabulous uh, Michelle Gomez as Missy. Mm, she is brilliant. So many great actors have played that role, haven't they, of Missy or the Master, whichever way you look at it. So many great yeah. actors and actresses that are just, just absolutely fantastic. Such Anthony, a crazy Anthony, lunatic, you know. Yeah, Anthony Ainley was brilliant, as we said last episode. Mm. John Sim came in uh, with David Tennant and just absolutely smashed it. Oh, so good. And then Michelle Gomez as Missy. People always say, oh, well, you know, the Doctor can't be a woman, the Doctor can't be a woman, all the, all the bullshit that we touched on in the Jodie Whittaker episode. Yeah. One thing I'm annoyed I didn't think of until just now, nobody gave a shit when Michelle Gomez was the master. Well, this is it. I don't know if people did complain about that. I, I wouldn't have been in the right circles to know if people were making complaints about it, but I loved it. I thought it was great. I never saw any. <laughs> no, okay, fair enough. So then, as we kind of come to an end today, I guess... Overall, your thoughts on watching this episode back? Well, I picked it because I, I knew it was one I liked anyway. Um, what I not realised was that there was that extra layer to it with um, the Doctor and Clara's relationship. So I am, even though I knew what I was getting into, I am pleasantly surprised that this is even better than I thought. Mm. I really do think it's a, a cracking episode. It adds adds a lot of depth to both the Doctor and Clara and their relationship. It's a great sort of monster of the week episode yeah i think it's it's a it's a unique story um and take on you know take on a classic and yeah i'm uh, i'm i'm dead pleased i chose to go back and revisit it how about yourself yeah. mate uh yeah i agree on the whole i agree on the whole i think the way it ended was a bit quick for me it wrapped up very quickly you had all this build up all this build up all this build up and then obviously the, the doctor's got effectively 60 seconds to do what he does so i understand the time the the time frame being restricted there but the fact then then it's literally the 60 seconds with the mummy the mummy salutes disappears train goes bang everyone's okay though that went a bit quick for my liking but i can understand that i suppose you can't really dwell on those things because you've got other stuff you need to cover and there's only so many minutes in an episode and i suppose i'm really nitpicking now i'm being quite fussy it, it did just sort of come across like it was kind of all quite quite a throwaway ending to certain aspects of the story to defend to defend it though they, they telegraphed that pretty hard in in the show itself they made a big deal of the time limit the doctor outright said give me 60 seconds with this thing and it'll mm. all be over and above all else, the only way to continue that would be to have another passenger die and to give another snippet of it, maybe another snippet of information that the doctor can use, or maybe have Clara and Maisie find something in the sarcophagus. There are ways that could have sort of reached that conclusion a little more slowly rather than just have the doctor be the smartest bugger in the room and, and piece it together in 60 seconds. Yeah. But 
Yeah, it's a completely valid criticism that it wrapped up quickly because it did. I just don't think there's any other way to do that, given the rest. Given the rest of the story, they've put that time limit in place. They've it, it's got to boil down at some point to the Doctor and the monster. Yeah, and it's yeah. only ever going to happen in a sixty-six second window. Yeah, but it's more so. Obviously, that bit I understand, but the bit afterwards, it was okay. That's done with. We're cutting the air. Train goes boom, big space boom, as we said. Yeah. And, then, and, and then we're on the beach, and it's just the doctor going, "Oh yeah, I did this, this, and this." Whilst no one was was looking, and that that's dealt with. But don't yeah. get me wrong. I, I suppose I suppose I'm going to contradict myself now because you don't want to see the doctor just popping around, dropping people off home and shit, do you? I get that. Yeah. Like, <laughs> you don't you don't need to see the tardis material around, materialize around every single person in there. Mm. You know, yeah, no, I, I understand that. that. Yeah, Again, like I said, it's me being a bit nitpicky, I suppose. It's, you know, <laughs> did, did you want a, did you want a slow motion uh, montage of the Doctor like dramatically carrying <laughs> carrying Clara over his shoulder to just get in the TARDIS with the explosion chasing chasing? <laughs> I'd, I'd be happy just a slow motion montage of Clara, mate. But let's move on. Let's move on. <laughs> I'm so glad I can only see you from the chest up. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so then so we have a little look at where i would like us to go with regards to old who classic who next week yes let's have it okay last time my selection was pretty much as well it was the 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 latest episode you could get because we had looked at the very last serial the very last story from classic who which was the sylvester mccoy story survival I'm running out of doctors left now. I've only got a handful left. So, <laughs> we're, we're a little restricted. And I'm, I'm trying to sort of, as you said, Dan, not do it too too much in order, I guess. Jump around a little bit and vary it up and so on. So I suppose if we've just looked at the last Doctor in Classic Who, I think we'll have a little look at the first Doctor in not just I, Classic Who, but Who in general. I did wonder if that's where you were going. Mm. Now, I did think... Because of the because of the, the whole way we looked at the last episodes of Classic Who was Sylvester McCoy, looking at the very first episodes of New Who. But at the same time, I'm thinking that there's a strong potential that you may have seen that or seen a lot of clips of that anyway. Or there's a strong potential that well, I'm not, I watched it back recently, and the first episode is fantastic. The story that follows is pretty pretty dire, to be fair. Right. <laughs> so. I then literally started looking into other William Hartnell stories and one that came to me literally because of an image I saw and it just sort of brought back memories of eating a pizza with my mate as a kid and watching black and white Doctor Who around my my old friend's house when I was nine, ten years old or whatever. And as soon as this came into my mind, I thought, I can't ignore this. This is what we're going to have to look at. It is a six-parter, so it might be a bit of a slog, but it it does feature our old friends, the Daleks, and it also features the very first time a companion leaves the Doctor. Ooh. I would like to look at the quite iconic story of the Dalek invasion of Earth, first broadcast in November of 1964. Marvellous. I can't wait to have a look at that. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds fantastic. It is obviously black and white a little bit you know a little bit scruffy around the edges shall we say with some of the uh special effects and so on but there's also some great moments in this the iconic daleks on certain uh certain landmarks in london and and so on just looks fantastic so because the, the only other time we've seen the daleks 
is in the first Dalek serial where they've been on Scara. So this is the first time you see the Daleks out of their own planet, I guess, in the whole of Doctor Who. So quite a historic, iconic story, quite an iconic serial for us to look at, Dan, my friend. Fantastic. Can't wait to get my teeth into that. It sounds. I think I may have actually seen a few bits and pieces of this. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't be surprised if there's moments you, you, that come on the screen and you go, oh, yeah, because there are such iconic scenes. Well, I think at one point uh, somewhere actually took the whole serial and and, and spliced it together as a, a near sort of two-hour movie. Okay. Or I might be thinking of something completely different, but I'm sure I've seen Daleks on uh, on London Bridge. <laughs> mm, yeah, very much. Very, very much a possibility. Some real iconic scenes. Then it's the first, I suppose, TARDIS crew is still intact mm-hmm. here. And, and obviously the first companion leaves, but this is the first TARDIS crew of Ian, Barbara, Susan and the Doctor that, that ran for the first year or so of, of Doctor Who in general. So you have the, the, the original group in the TARDIS there. Great stuff. Can't wait to do my homework. <laughs> Great stuff. Awesome. I'm looking forward to it too, my friend. I'm looking forward to it too. Before we depart though, do you want to let everyone know where they can find you on social media and where they can find all your content and so on please dan yeah you can find me on twitter at dan griffin 21 usually tweeting about wrestling that's six weeks out of date or movies that are 25 years out of date or doctor who that was released into from 2005 onwards uh, you can also find me on unbooking the territory uh, with rob where we look at the first and last of professional wrestling uh, that's on twitter at utt podcast and you can search the same on all good podcast providers. You can also find our side project on booking the Tankatory, where we look mm-hmm. at the uh, the life and career in WCW of Tank Abbott. Uh, that's on Twitter at UTT Tank, and uh, the podcast just appears in the UTT podcast feed. Uh, and finally, for content for me, I'm on the monthly pay-per-view reviews uh, on the That Night is Wrestling podcast playlist on Primetime Conversations. You can find that on Primetime Conversations on YouTube. Give it a like, share, subscribe, all that jazz. And then you can find the Twitter at Primetime Convos. Awesome stuff, mate. Awesome stuff. You can find me on Twitter at SJP Words. And there you can find links to all the shows I'm involved in. By the time you hear this, Nitro Nights, my new project with our good friend Scottish Danny will be available looking back at the wrestling company WCW one show at a time starting with the very first Monday Nitro and running through in order until the company goes belly up because the people running it were morons and you can also hear me live on a Monday night and the podcast version that comes out on a Wednesday of chain wrestling that i do with max we have various other episodes of the waiting room being built up ready to come out the quantum leap podcast i do with benny but you can find links to all these shows all the stuff i do just simply by searching for me on twitter at sjp words or looking for me on facebook sjp all the shows and info but most importantly you can find this show on facebook and twitter at the Doctor Who pod, and it is exactly as it sounds at the DR Who pod. At the Doctor Who pod, chuck us a follow, let us know what you think of the show, let us know how much you find it funny that I can't pronounce certain words, let us know how much you get annoyed with our opinions, whichever way you want to go for it. Just drop us a, in, drop us a message, drop us a tweet, let us know if you're enjoying the show, what you want us to look at in season two, and so on. Again, Dan, I've had a bloody whale of a time talking to you about Doctor Who, mate. It's been fantastic, and I'm really looking forward to going way, way, way back when to 1964. 
Oh, I what in the wayback machine? I'm very excited, mate. It's uh, like I said, I might be revisiting it. I might have had a dream. Who knows? But we'll find <laughs> out. <laughs> there we go. I'm really looking forward to it. My dad actually can remember watching this. He was ten when this first aired. Was he ten or eleven? He might have turned eleven by that point. But he was. He can remember watching this and being scared of the Daleks when he was little when it is originally aired so I might have to sort of get a few quotes from my old man about this anyway but anyway I'm looking forward to it Dan and I will speak to you very very soon my friend speak to you soon buddy bye bye and to everyone else as always thank you for listening